Welcome to the WPS Remix Edition of the Plastic Surgery Hot Seat Podcast, presented by the ASPS Women Plastic Surgeons Forum. I'm Dr. Paige Myers, Clinical Assistant Professor at the University of Michigan, and I'm excited to share the latest pearls and pitfalls in aesthetic and reconstructive breast, body, and facial surgery straight from the WPS Symposium. Hello, um, my name is Carrie Ann Mitchell, and I am a neuroplastic surgeon at The Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio. My practice is neuroplastic surgery where I, I deal with complex scalp and calvarial reconstruction. And so today I'm the moderator for the reconstruction panel. And with me, I have Dr. Rachel Analik, and she is um, here to talk about efficiency in microsurgery. And so I'll have Dr. Analik briefly introduce herself. Hi, I'm Rachel Analik. Um, I am currently an assistant professor in plastic surgery at Washington University in St. Louis. I did my plastic surgery training at Duke and I did a microsurgery fellowship at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And uh, my practice is oncologic reconstruction, primarily micro. I do a lot of breast reconstruction and um, I would say my breast reconstruction is heavily weighted towards autologous or micro. All right, so tell us, um, Dr. Alec, what would you say are your top five tips for being efficient as a microsurgeon? So it's something we're always all striving towards is efficiency in the operating room. What would you say are your top five? Um, let's see, I think that um, one of the biggest things is communication and being present. So making sure that you're in the OR when the patient rolls in, that you have effectively communicated your plan to the circulator, the nurses, the residents, the entire team. So making sure that that communication is completely set and everybody knows what the plan is before you even get started. Um, so a lot of pre-gaming. Mm -hmm. I think that um, intraoperatively, some of the technology and the devices that we use can really be key in um, making sure that you're very efficient. And so my absolute favorite um, tool that I use is a symmetry surgical bipolar and it's a multi-purpose instrument. So um, I'm able to dissect fine perforators with it because it has these really sharp tips, really fine tips, and it has a nice like springy handle to it. So I'm able to use it to dissect um, and then it cauterizes. So as I go, I'm able to kind of dissect out the perforator and it even if you squeeze it will will cut. And so it really kind of does everything for me. Um, the other device that I use frequently are various things for static retraction. So I don't like there to be a lot of moving parts or any sort of like unpredictable hands. And so um, I use fish hooks to retract the muscle as I go. And then I'm constantly moving those fish hooks so there's less grabbing of the muscle. Um, and then it also helps me get like that perfect amount of tension so I can dissect the perforator. And I use penetrating towel clamps to um, hold back the flap. And then not only is the static retraction, I feel like more safe and helps me be efficient, but also it frees up um, hands so that other people are able to work on other sites and move the case forward. Um, otherwise, I think that if you're constantly thinking about the end game, then you can make sure that you kind of set yourself up for success. And so, for instance, if you're doing second micro, making sure that you 
are bending the patient and getting that belly closure completely set uh, before you move on with your micro. Taking that you know extra five minutes to get the belly set can really make you um, more efficient. So I'm not sure if that's five, but those I think are like <laughs> the biggest things, biggest takeaway things for me. Those are definitely pearls, and I um, so much of it. I, I completely agree with you. And one of my what I always tell my residents is that. The surgery should be easy. Even microsurgery should be easy. And if you get yourself set up right and optimize yourself for the operation, then it, then that's the easy part. The hard part is getting set up. And the other the other thing that you just said as well is you, being present. So at the beginning of the case, being there to get things set up. Sometimes you're working in a multidisciplinary team and you have multiple teams trying to address different aspects of the case and being there to, to, to facilitate that communication with your co-surgeons, the OR staff, is really a critical aspect to make sure that your day goes smoothly and your case goes smoothly. Um, Definitely. One of my mentors used to always tell me that the least efficient thing is a take back. And so I definitely think about that as I'm closing as well. I want to make sure that I, I'm not trying to cut any corners. You know, if there's any concern whatsoever about any of the micro, I would rather in that moment just take it down and redo it and make sure that it's perfect and that I'm happy as opposed to kind of closing up and, and hoping for the best. And so trying to make sure that you're perfectly happy and that there's no reason to go back. And I feel like nine times out of 10, you really know that at the end of the case. You're happy. Mm -hmm. And so but I think my my counterpart to that is I tell the resident, it doesn't become an M&M until you leave the OR. <laughs> and so if you leave, if something doesn't look right, no harm, no stitches sacred, take it out and redo it. It doesn't become an M&M until you're taking it back. So you're, you're, that's right. that's, so no, 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 um, no efficiency in a take back. That's right. And what would you say if you had one key piece of one key pearl for trainees and a residents who are junior and they're just getting into this, what would you say is your top piece of advice? Um, I think that making sure that you have a good mentor. And so when I started my job, I, even though I felt like very well trained, um, I wanted to make sure that there was going to be somebody there that I could bounce ideas off of. And so there's, you know, no shame in asking for help and you don't need to be too proud. The most important thing is that you're doing the best for your patients. Um, and so if I have a question or I'm worried about anything, I'm either going to run down the hall and grab a senior partner or another co-surgeon, or sometimes even just take a five minute break and call one of my mentors and just say like, Hey, this is what I'm running into. What do you think? Um, can you give me like some idea of how you would do this? And that oftentimes like is really really helpful especially in like the first year of my practice um i did that quite a bit and i think it it really saved me a few times and so you know have some good people on speed dial that you can call for help uh, that's so critical and even during the case if you have a question just step out and call somebody it's safer than just proceeding if you're not really sure or ask for help or co-surgeon cases these cases can be long and rigorous and time-consuming, mentally challenging. And so co-surgeon those to cut down and not keep the patient under anesthesia for a shorter time. So that is so critical. Mm -hmm. um, let's talk gadgets and devices. I know you mentioned the bipolar. Um, what what would you say about your post-operative monitor? Do you use any implantable dopplers or what other devices would you say? I'm pretty much a minimalist. I mean, there's a lot of things you can do. Of course, the implantable cook dopplers are great. Um, bioptics can be great. When I was a resident, we used all the things. So mm -hmm. they had implantable dopplers, they had bioptics. 
Um, as a fellow, we just use a stitch. And um, as an attending, I just use a stitch. So I like that because I can listen to it. There's you know, that end perfusion. I think with a cook Doppler, sometimes they can get dislodged and then that gives me some anxiety if I can't hear it because it's hard to say if there's really not a good flow or if the probe has just kind of been malpositioned. And so I don't love that about it. The Vioptics I think actually is a very useful device especially if you have a team that's used to dealing with the bioptics and the probe is appropriately attached and again, not malfunctioning. Um, I think you can do some, you can catch some early um, venous congestion with the bioptics and save yourself some time and even potentially some flaps. I have certainly have seen that in training. I don't use it as an attending only because I don't want to have an avenue to constantly check my phone every 30 seconds like a maniac and so i just don't do that yeah. the only time i would potentially do it is i tend to leave like very very small skin paddles and so if i can't find a doppler stitch then i might put a bioptics probe there but i would say that's incredibly rare like i've maybe done that like twice in my um three years at WashU. Um, and then again, usually after that Bioptics Pro has been on a day and those choke vessels have opened up, a lot of times you can find a Doppler signal um, the following day. And so then there's not a need for the device, but, but those, are, those are expensive. And so right. I like to minimize that if I can, of course. It's good to know that it's there and be familiar with it, though, in case you run into something tough. I think one thing that I forgot to mention in terms of the devices that I love, though, would be the Insorb stapler. Mm -hmm. So I really love that it's a dissolvable staple that you can put in the deep dermal layer. Um, and so I think that really saves me a ton of time because you can basically do all of the deep dermals, like just run it across the belly and you can get that done in like literally three minutes. Um, so as you can imagine, that's an incredible time saver. And then I do like intersperse some 3.0 deep dermal vicrolls in between the insulin just to kind of give myself peace of mind and make sure I have some of our normal sutures. But I have not run into problems with it and I found it to be extremely useful. Awesome. And another thing I will add, you may have heard us mention some devices. None of us have any relevant conflicts of interest or any disclosures related to any of the any devices that we may have mentioned. It really are just tools that we use in our practice and think are um, helpful. And so thank you. I think today I have with me Dr. Carolyn Dela Cruz, and she is a lymphedema specialist. She comes to us from Pittsburgh, where she's the chief of the plastic surgery at UPMC Shadyside, as well as the director of the Comprehensive Lymphedema Center. So I'll have Dr. Dela Cruz introduce herself as well. Hi, Carrie Ann. It's nice to be here. <laughs> nice to be here. <laughs> So as you mentioned, I am a, um, a director of lymphatic surgery at UPMC. I run a multidisciplinary lymphatic clinic there. I also uh, provide tertiary care and, and uh, cancer reconstruction um, for breast cancer patients and uh, patients at the Hillman Cancer Center in Shadyside Hospital. So it's uh, nice to be here. Thank you. Thank you. So today you gave an excellent talk on lymphedema and it was so engaging. I think I think so there you one of the points you brought up was that if you do breast cancer surgery, you do 
lymphedema surgery because we are create by removing breast cancers and removing lymph nodes, patients who are going to get lymphedema. So it's something to be aware of. What would you say are your um, top five considerations for all surgeons who are doing breast reconstruction and may encounter or will encounter this patient population? Right. So thank you for that. I mean, I did poll the audience. And like you said, I asked them if you're doing breast cancer reconstruction and everyone raised their hand and then I said are you doing lymphedema surgery and uh, and I mean actually I was very happy to see that uh, a couple of people raised their hand so I was excited about that but I think that probably one of my number one tips would really be that if you are treating breast cancer patients the chances are that they have lymphedema and so if you learn nothing else from my talk or this podcast, I think it would be that to remember that um, because um, we, by virtue of treatment for the breast cancer, radiation, removing the lymph nodes, and certainly surgery, um, it's a disease that in, in breast cancer patients, we gave to them. Mm -hmm. And so I, I really feel the burden of responsibility to help, um, at least help uh, treat them and find um, ways to um, improve their quality of life. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a really important to remember. Um, I think the other really important talk that I, I was um, grateful to see that the audience had um, asked a number of questions about is that they, the point that early diagnosis can lead to earlier intervention. And that really is the key to prevent progression of disease and these later stages. Mm -hmm. So because um, the technology has changed so much. And so nowadays it's not like the old days. Mm -hmm. And so there's a modern era of lymphedema care. Um, and obviously I, I'm a strong advocate of um, surgery being a part of that. All right, excellent. You can't treat it if you don't diagnose it. And so it's it's such a critical thing to be aware of. And when we see your patients in follow-up, to not just hope they come in and look at the breast, but also look at the patient as a whole and look at what other considerations right. they have. Right. Um, and one of the things that I was impressed with in your talk was when you said you stepped beyond the surgical aspect and looked at all the perioperative lymphedema care as well, and you even got certified for the adjunctive therapies. Tell us a little bit more about that. Right. So I am a certified lymphedema therapist. I got certified through closed training, which is um, a descendant of the Foley, Foley Clinic in Germany, um, which has been around for a very long time and treating patients um, with conservative management. Mm -hmm. A lot of surgeons, when they hear that, they look at me like I'm crazy because they're, they wonder, well, you can just do surgery for patients. But I believe in a balance and I believe in offering patients every modality, no matter what it is. And so, and I think conservative treatment is still a large part of patient care. <clears throat> so just to know a little bit more about what they were doing and understand it, um, and I think that that, you know, it's a responsibility of anything you're doing, right? You're doing um, uh, neuroplastic surgery. You mm -hmm. want to learn about the brain. Mm -hmm. um, you're doing lymphedema surgery. You want to know about, um, you know, CDT, complete decongestive therapy. So I think it was a respect and, and a way for me to provide complete care and really provide myself 
with complete understanding of just the disease itself. So, so I'm very, very um, happy that I did that, even though many people um, wonder uh, why. I know, I think that is phenomenal. And I think it's, a, it's that holistic approach and being able to see the patient postoperatively and have an understanding of when you refer them to therapy, what can you expect? What should you expect? Being able to counsel the patient on that and know when surgical intervention may or may not be needed. Right, mm -hmm. and I actually, right, and so, so thanks for that point. To your point, I think that actually it develops a stronger connection to the therapists I don't see it as an either or, I see it as an and, and I think they like that collaboration. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I agree. Mm -hmm. um, let's talk a little bit more about prophylactic. What, what are your thoughts on prophylactic lymphedema treatment for patients who newly diagnosed breast cancer and are looking forward to having this operation? What are things that we should be thinking about as reconstructive surgeons? So I, th so I think that it's the future, mm -hmm. and I think it's really the holy grail of it because in reality, lymphedema is, um, there is no cure. Most people would agree to that. And um, prevention would probably be key. Mm -hmm. I think that it's been uh, a, a neglected area. And I would like, I would challenge everyone listening out there to name one other structure that we completely detach and don't even try to reattach. <laughs> I mean, to me, it seems really like an obvious addition mm -hmm. to our current therapies. Mm -hmm. And it's really gonna be this idea of innovation that's gonna be able to move the needle. And lympha is just another example of where technology and innovation is really meeting us mm -hmm. um, where we are, you know, and preparing us for future, future um, outcomes. Agreed. I, and I think the, the lymphatic system to me is just so fascinating. And you briefly mentioned in your talk as well, like now we know that there is lymphatic circulation even in the brain. And so what we found is, and it's the one of the first studies came out in about 2018, is that when you remove a piece of the skull and you perform a craniectomy, it, it disrupts the lymphatic circulation in the brain. And that also may be part of why people get syndrome of the trephine and they get these um, significant neurological derangement from having a piece of their bone removed, and part of that may be attributed to the disruption in the lymphatic flow. And so, it's. It, I think there is so much room for research and objective data for what we can do as surgeons as we move forward. That we're not just reconstructing, but we're also on the preventative side as well. Wait, did are you? Did I convert you to be a lymphatic surgeon too? <laughs> you just me. <laughs> then I've accomplished my goal. That's great. We have another one out there. Thank you. <laughs> That's fascinating, but no, I'm just, I just really think it's, it's just so fascinating. Um, and then, what would you say for a trainee? What's your key takeaway point for trainees who may be listening to this podcast? Great. So, um, I would say for people in your training, I would say um, be patient. Be patient with yourself as you're learning because it's hard, and be patient with others around you. Um, I would say be dedicated to the people that you care for um, and work hard because work hard is fun and um, really love what you do. I think those are um, important, uh, important motto. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
I love that. Love what you do. And I, I love what I do. People ask me, well, oh, how's work? I'm like, you know, I love work. Like when I'm at work, it's my happy place. When I'm in the OR, it's my happy place. So find what really drives you and love what you do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. I think we are out of time. All right. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the WPS Remix Edition of the Plastic Surgery Hot Seat Podcast, brought to you by the ASPS Women Plastic Surgeons Forum. We hope you found our coverage of the WPS Symposium informative and engaging. Remember to subscribe to our podcast, check out our other episodes on your preferred platform, or download them directly from ASPSNet. Stay tuned for more insightful conversations and expert advice to help you navigate the latest trends and challenges in plastic surgery.